Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this time as we come before you and your word, and we think on heaven again this day, how wondrous, glorious it is going to be. We have so much to learn about heaven. It just thrills my heart, and may you awaken even each individual here today to have a greater longing and for heaven that you have prepared for us. Bless our time. May your Holy Spirit work even now to move me out of the way to speak forth your words of truth. And this way, this we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. And I know that it has been mentioned before in this pulpit, but I don't think it can be mentioned enough. And it's worth repeating over and over. After almost 50 long years, on Friday, June 24th, 2022, I cried when I heard the news that Roe versus Wade had been overturned. It was a day like many of you, a day that I thought I would never see in my lifetime. One of our children asked me recently how I got a bruise on my knee, one of my knees. And I will tell you how I got that bruise on my knee. Because that day, I was so happy that I tried to do something like a cartwheel and bruised my knee in the process because I was so overjoyed. So there you have it. That is how I got that bruise. What a day to remember and one that I will never forget. We celebrate in this victory of life. We definitely were able to see history unfold. Yesterday, I went to the homegoing service for my dear pastor friend and brother from Bellevue, Phil Newberry. It's a beautiful celebration of his life, of a life well lived, for the glory of Christ. Shortly after his death, I did something which I don't do very often, and that was to look in the obituary section to try to find his obituary. Now, some of you may do that commonly, but. <laughs> and while searching the obituaries, one particular obituary caught my eye. This obituary went something like this. He was preceded in death by his parents and his brother. Then it went on to say, and he leaves behind his devoted husband. Let me just stop there. He does not and cannot have a husband. Yes, the law of the land can claim that it is so-called legal, but God's law has not changed. And I pray for the day when this so-called same-sex marriage law will be overturned in our land. So let me remind you that everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. God has not changed his text on what true marriage is. In Genesis 2, and 24, where he says, 
and I will spread, I will stress the pronouns as some like to do in a certain community. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me say this as kind as I can. Two men together or two women together will never be one flesh and will never procreate. Did you get that? Everybody talking about heaven ain't going. And the comments were made about this gentleman, and several of the comments went something like this. I think he was a musician, and one says, rest in peace, my friend. You have been given a larger cathedral than you know what to do with as you play your captivating arrangements in heaven above. What? Listen, friends, unless this man repented before he took his last breath, he is not in heaven. Paul says it best in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, such were some of you. If this is a continual pattern of your life, you're not going to heaven. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. If this is an ongoing pattern, you are not headed for heaven. Your greatest need is to repent and put your trust and faith in Christ and him alone for salvation. So let's continue on in our study on the truth about heaven. Just to do a quick recap, in our previous message, we learned that reasons to long for heaven are what? Who is in heaven? Who do we say is in heaven? Jesus is in heaven. Our Father is in heaven. Who else is in heaven? Loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our names are in heaven. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. All of God's glory and grace are in heaven. Our treasure is in heaven. And we learned that there are how many heavens? Three. You guys have been listening. You all have been listening. Good job. The first is what we call the atmospheric heaven. And that is the heaven that we see all around us. Then we talked about 
the second heaven, which is the planetary heaven, where we see the moon and the stars and where the planets are. And far, far beyond that heaven is the third heaven, and this is the heaven we are most concerned about. And this is the heaven where who lives? Where God lives. This is where God lives. Where God and his angels live, as well as believers who have died and are now in the presence of the Lord. We also talked about wrong views that some people have of what happens to believers once they die. Remember, some held the, the wrong view that when Old Testament believers died, they went to a holding place or a place called Hades. And there was a section for the wicked and a section for the righteous. They believed that the righteous went to a place called Abraham's bosom. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And stayed there until Christ had come and died for their sins and rose from the dead. And then they would go to heaven. We don't find this anywhere in scripture. We talked about the wrong view that some have called soul sleep. Then we talked about the wrong view of heaven that many in the Catholic system hold to believing that one goes to a place called, remember, purgatory. Purgatory. So-called to purge them of their remaining sin and guilt and gain whatever merit they may be missing. They may be sincere about their beliefs, beloved, but they are sincerely wrong. Remember we said that as believers we are not in the physical place called heaven right now, but because our citizenship in heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, we are in the what? Does anybody remember? We are in the heavenlies. We are right now in the heavenlies. We're not in heaven. The Bible teaches us the opposite in that a true believer goes to heaven immediately after he or she dies. The psalmist gives us great hope in that. In Psalm 16, the psalmist says in verses 10 and 11, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist was looking forward with great anticipation of being in the presence of the Lord and experiencing the fullness of joy. After having suffered in this life, he in no way thought of suffering again after death in a place called purgatory. And he was not thinking about his soul going to sleep, but knowing that he had the hope of being with the Lord. Isn't that comforting? Yes, it is. And also in that psalm that we are so very familiar with, Psalm 23. In the very last verse of that psalm, the psalmist says, which is even more comforting, where he says, and I know a lot of you probably know it by heart, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in, does he say purgatory? I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. He didn't say for a day. He didn't say for a week. He didn't say for a month. He said we're going to dwell there how long? Forever and ever and ever.
Remember, we said that God lives in heaven. So when David says to dwell in the house of the Lord, he is talking about heaven. It is the same as when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, where he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then we turn to the New Testament, namely Luke 16 and verse 22, which is speaking of Lazarus, who was a, a, a poor beggar. In the story, it says, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The word for bosom in the original language is the word chest. Now, I know I jokingly mentioned this briefly in our last message. Some believe that when Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, some think of this to mean that Lazarus went to some sort of holding place, but the text does not give any indication of that. We already talked about what the Old Testament saints believed when we looked at Psalms. Not to belabor the point, but they believed that once they died, they would go directly or immediately to heaven. So from that, we can conclude that Lazarus and Abraham were in the presence of the Lord. To help you out with this whole idea of Abraham's bosom, we can go back to a passage in John 13, where Jesus is having his last Passover with his disciples. Question. How many of you recline at your dinner table when you eat? I know some of you probably would like to. I would venture to say not many or none at all. In the Jewish culture, this was the way most people would eat, and that is by reclining. So John says in John 13, 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. One of the reasons that those they had to recline is simply because the table was a very low table. And just to put this in perspective and in proper context, in the Jewish culture, banquets would consist of feasting, music, and talking. Lots of conversation. Most of them lasted for days. They would position themselves so that they would lean on their elbows while reclining with their heads together so that to the person across the table, it looked like one person's head was resting on the other person's chest. And the guests would rec recline like this because it would help them to talk while they ate with the hand that was free and they were able to eat with that other hand. In verse 25 of John 13 it says, so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? The disciple being spoken of here is John himself. He was so close to Jesus. He was so very close to Jesus. It's his head. That his head was near Jesus' bosom or his chest. So all that to say this. When Lazarus was carried to Abraham's bosom, as we well know, the patriarch Abraham was highly regarded by all those in the Jewish community. We know that Abraham had long been gone and was now where? 
in heaven. So here it's Lazarus at Abraham's bosom. So Lazarus is now too in heaven where Abraham was. So listen, friends, let me say this again. This is not some type of limbo state, but this is heaven. Nowhere in scripture do we find where Old Testament believers went to temporary places to wait for Christ to come, to die and be rose again from the dead, and then carry them to glory. Let's get this one thing straight, dear friends. It is simply not there in the text. Then there's the familiar passage, which we all know in Luke 23, verses 42 to 43, talking about Jesus, and one of the thieves on the cross says, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. He didn't say once you come out of purgatory, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say next week. He said today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is the same word that the apostle Paul used to describe the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 3. Paradise is another word for heaven. We know that God is in heaven, Isaiah 6, 1 and 2, and Matthew 22, 30, and Luke 15, 10 even tell us that angels are in heaven. The Old and New Testament believers who have died are in heaven. Yes, heaven is an actual place, and as we talked about before, we cannot measure out the perfect dimensions of heaven. Pretty simple question. What direction is heaven? Not a, not a trick question. Up. Thank you. It's up. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Paul says he was caught where? Up to the third heaven. Acts 1 tells us that Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts 1, 9 through 11 says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. And I love what verse 11 says. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. He is. So how far is the third heaven? To give you an idea, seven to 10 miles from the Earth's surface is an area called the troposphere. Beyond that is an area called the stratosphere. About 50 miles further is the mesosphere. And 250 miles further is the ionosphere. And going beyond that is what is called the exosphere, which is beyond the universe. 
And far past all of that is the third heaven. To say the least, heaven is far, far away. Most of us have watched rockets take off to go up into the skies. The moon is 252,000 miles from the earth. And believe it or not, that is pretty close. If you walked 24 miles a day, you would get there in about 28 years. But the fact of the matter is that you would still not be close to heaven. Yet, Jesus said to the thief, when would he be in heaven? In 28 years? No, he said, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Ezekiel gives us one view of heaven, and if you would turn there, Ezekiel 1. And I'm going to read somewhat rapidly, Ezekiel 1, starting in verse 4. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies and each went straight forward wherever the spirit was about to go they would go without turning as they went in the midst of the living beings there was something that looked like burning coals of fire like torches darting back and forth among the living beings the fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings. For each of the four of them, the appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling beryl, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. Whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever the, those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close behind them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body 
on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. You think? Wow. He gives us this snippet of heaven where he says, and he, he, he draws out this description. What does all this mean? Well, in a real and human sense, I don't have the slightest idea. And to be real honest, neither did Ezekiel. What we do know is that he has a vision and he tries in his puny and finite mind to describe what he saw. And we know that he saw the blazing light reflected off polished jewels and colored wheels of light mixed with angelic beams. Around the throne of God, he saw something that I know that one of our sons would be delighted to know and that he saw a flashing, sparkling, shining rainbow of brilliance. And while I'm on the topic of the so-called LGBTQXRYZU and whatever you, you call yourself, can never take away the rainbow. God gave that rainbow as a promise, and don't let anyone try to tell you otherwise. It is God's rainbow. Always has been and always will be. No so-called pride parade or any other immoral group can take away what was never theirs. It is God's rainbow. Given to us as a promise that he would never again flood the earth again to destroy all flesh. Lest you forget, Genesis 9, 12 through 17 says, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That is why one of our children so enjoys rainbows, and we too should celebrate in the truth and not let darkness overshadow the light. We have the truth. They need 
the truth. Even when we went to see the replica of Noah's Ark in Kentucky, at night, the Ark would be lit up in colors of the rainbow. What a sight to behold. That is why I still get excited whenever I see an actual rainbow in the sky after the rain has come. I didn't mean to get off on my soapbox. Back to Ezekiel 1 and his vision of heaven. What are... What you don't want to do is try to find a meaning for every symbol in Ezekiel's vision. In other words, we are not to be a detective or an investigator here and look under every rock and try to figure out what everything means. What Ezekiel was trying to show here is that God is a God of great majesty, sovereignty, and glory. The big takeaway is that he was trying to show the glory of heaven. That is why he uses the pictures of the wheels moving the flashing lightning, the sparkling jewels, and the incredible light. All of these things describe God's glory. This lets us know again that heaven is way beyond our ability to comprehend. It is grander than grand. It is brilliant than brilliance. Such an unindescribable and wondrous place. John helps us to fill in some of those details in Revelation. The word heaven actually appears more than 50 times in this book. God is called the God of heaven in Revelation 11, 13 and Revelation 16, 11. In the Old Testament, this phrase is used some 22 times. The fact of the matter is that the book of Revelation is written, written from heaven's perspective. There are similarities between Ezekiel's vision and John's vision. In Revelation 4, John is taking us into the throne room of God. This is where the good part is. Starting at verse 1, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing in heaven, standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. In verse 3 he says, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. I don't know if any of you know much about the jasper stone, although some of you may think it, of it as a quartz of different colors, especially shades of green. In Bible times, it was more transparent or something you could see through. John also says that God was like a sardius in appearance. Some commentators have said that the red sardius may speak of God as redeemer, the one who ultimately gave the blood sacrifice. If that is the case, it shows God's redemptive aspects. I don't know if you ever thought about much about it, but when you were doing your intense and detailed study in Exodus, but Jasper and sardius were the first and last of the 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest. They represented Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, and Benjamin, his youngest son. Like Ezekiel, John can't fully describe heaven's glory, so he compares it to precious stones to try to help one to try to get some sense of his vision of God's throne in heaven. So really, even with the picture of the, the jewels, this is really something more than we can begin to fully comprehend and grasp. Like Ezekiel, 
John 2 mentions the rainbow. So in Ezekiel and John's vision, there was a rainbow. So this should once again tell you something of the importance and the significance of the rainbow. In verses 4 and 5, John says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders, sitting clothed in white garments and, and golden crowns on their heads. This speaks of the whole of the redeemed church. Out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of the burning of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The thunder and lightning speak of the reverence and awe that one has before a holy God. The thunder and lightning should also be a reminder of what happened in Exodus 19:16 when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. When John mentions in verse 5 the seven spirits of God, although seven is my favorite number, you can be certain about this. He is in no way, form, or fashion talking about seven holy spirits. That's not the case. That's not what he's talking about there. The Bible nowhere teaches that, beloved. The seven spirits actually links back to Revelation 2 and 3, where John is talking about the seven churches. And this goes back to the seven lamps, which speak of the seven lampstands of the churches. The pictures of seven candles on a single gold lampstand. I'm sure many of you have seen such a lampstand called a menorah. So we still haven't answered the question of how is the spirit seven. As we mentioned before, this is referring to the seven churches. So basically it is saying that the spirit is sovereign over the seven churches in chapters two to three. Because seven is the number of completion, John is referring to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation, in verse 6 of Revelation 4, it says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The four living creatures speak of angelic beings, possibly cherubim. So get in your mind a scene of an incredibly shining rainbow Flashing colors of emerald, sardius and jasper, all splashing off a sea of crystal. Again, all of these colors and lights speak of the incredible splendor and majesty of the throne of God. So, beloved, heaven is never pictured as a dark tunnel, as some say that they see when they went to heaven and came back. Heaven is described by the complete opposite, with brilliance and blazing light. Even when the angelic beings and the 24 elders are mentioned, the primary focus is always on the incredible glory of God. In the ancient world, do you know what the two most important buildings were? If you guess the palace and the temple, you're absolutely right. They stood for the civil and spiritual authority. In heaven, the focus on God's throne speaks of his sovereignty and his worthiness to be worshipped. You can look at it this way. Heaven is God's palace, and heaven is also God's temple. Revelation 3.12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. What a wonderful picture here. 
Some of you may say, wait a minute, Christopher, what about the passage in Revelation 21, 22 that says, I saw no temple in it. Some try to bring the two passages together by saying that right now there is a temple in heaven, but when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, there will no longer be a temple. That sounds good and all, but what you have to understand and what brings me, to, me so much joy and makes me almost want to shout is what John goes on to say in Revelation 21, 22 to 23 is this. Let's get this straight. The temple is not a building where he says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the lamp. Beloved, please don't miss this point. We are not some sort of support post in a building. But we are in the very presence of the Lord and are knitted or joined to him. Never to leave him. He is the temple. We are the pillars. Friend, if that doesn't make you shout, then your wood must be wet. Listen, friends. Even if God spelled out all the details about heaven, we still would not be able to grasp and understand all of it. It is unlike anything we can really fathom. God has left us here for a purpose. And Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians 2, 4, where he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We will, Lord willing, continue on in a couple weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the vision that Ezekiel had, that John had, that you have given us a glimpse of how we are grafted in how we are knitted and joined to you. And all of heaven speaks of the glory of you. The glory of you, God. May we grasp and capture that vision and cling to it forever and ever and ever. And we pray this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen.